Some of us grew up with the phrase of telling someone, your goose is cooked. Now, that is not about poultry preparation, in case you have never heard that before. If you said to someone, your goose is cooked, that meant that you were headed for trouble, you were headed for disaster, and you were going to be put down. Something was looming in front of you, and your goose was going to be cooked. But do you know where that statement came from? Interesting enough, that statement is from the Middle Ages. There was a man in the late 1300s born whose name was John Huss. John Huss became a Roman Catholic priest and then in the early 1400s began to look at what he was studying in Scripture and had some convictions. One, that Jesus Christ was the head of the church, not the Pope. He also came and looked at the ordinance of communion and said that he did not believe that Scripture taught that the blood of of Christ actually, or the juice actually transubstantiated and turned into the blood, or that the wafer actually turned into the body of Christ. It was something that we do in remembrance. And the third thing he said was, and only Jesus Christ can forgive of sins. Now, something unique happened in the early 1400s in the Catholic Church at that time. There was more than one guy who was claiming to be the Pope. It is called the Great Schism in church history, but there was uh, different countries, and they were proclaiming that they had the real Pope. And so, Pope John XXIII decided that he would offer, now listen, plenary indulgences. And that meant that forgiveness of sins or free passes out of purgatory, if you would help to fund him as he fought against the Pope that was in Rome at that time. And Huss, man, he confronted and said, no way, this is wrong. And he was dragged before the Council of Constance in 1415. And on July the 6th, 1415, John Huss was burned at the stake. But before he was burned at the stake, he was in the area called Bohemia at that time. Today we would say Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic. The word Huss in the Czech language is the word goose. And so before he died, Huss proclaimed this. You may cook this goose, but within a hundred years, there will come a swan. And 102 years later was when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the church door at uh, Wittenberg. You can cook this goose. That's where that statement came from. John Huss was just one of many who through the ages has been martyred for standing for Jesus. And Peter is writing to a group of believers that had the looming threat of the Roman Empire above them. And he writes to them that if and when you suffer, you are to do that to the glory of God. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. And today we're going to pick up in verse number 12 as we think about 
living for the glory of God, but specifically we think of the area of suffering for the cause of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. That name that he's referring to, if anyone suffers as a Christian. If you have that name, Christian Christ follower, and you suffer for that, do not be ashamed, but bring glory to God. With that, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and the truth in it. And God, speak to us today as we think of this very sobering topic of suffering for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're really finishing up a series that we started in January called Living for God's Glory. And we have based it off 1 Corinthians 10.31 that says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you are to do that to the glory of God. Life is not about you. And life's not about you, and life's not about you, and life's not about me. Life ultimately is is that we're living as someone who is seeking to bring glory to God. We want to bring glory to him, not make a name for ourselves. So that whatever we do, we're to do everything to bring glory to God. That means that as we go to school, or we go to work, or as we're hanging out in the neighborhood, or maybe we're kicking back and watching a movie tonight and eating some popcorn. Whatever you do, you are to do that to the glory of God. And there are five specific ways in scripture that tell us how we can bring glory to God or give glory to God. He tells us in Philippians 2, 9, that when someone confesses Jesus Christ as Lord, they do that to the glory of God the Father. So we confess Jesus as Lord. Romans 4, 20 tells us that Abraham being strengthened in faith gave glory to God. So that living a life of faith is going to bring glory to God. We find in John 15, 8, that Jesus wants his disciples to bear much fruit so that God may be glorified, so that we bear fruit to the glory of God. We looked just last week at the verses just preceding this one in 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11, where it tells us that if anyone speaks, he should speak the oracles of God. And if anyone serves, he should serve with the strength that God provides that he may give glory to God. And now Peter follows that up with this passage, if anyone suffer as a Christian, we are to do that to the glory of God, because we have that name. Now Peter is writing to believers about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. Now remember in Acts chapter 8 and verse number 1, that 
persecution came down upon the church in Jerusalem and people began to filter out to different areas of the Roman Empire. So now Peter is writing to believers that are in today what would be considered modern day Turkey. They are five to eight hundred miles away from the city of Jerusalem, from home, from where many of them came to know Jesus as Savior. Now they have been dispersed and Peter, as he is challenging them, under the Roman Empire realizes that these folks live in the same culture he does. It is a polytheistic culture. It is a culture where the the Caesar the uh, of Rome is worshipped. It is a, a an idolatrous and immoral culture in which they live. And now as you choose to follow Christ and live under the authority of God's word, understand that suffering or persecution may come upon you. And so Peter, instead of saying, hey, man, you live in a tough world. Why don't you just take it easy? You know, why don't you just kick back? Kind of put up your little tent and make your little huddle and, and man, just protect yourself. Take care of yourself. No. Peter would tell us in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, keep your mind alert and be sober and and ready for prayer. And I want you to go out and I want you to love people fervently and constantly because love is going to cover a multitude of sins. And I want you to go out there and I want you to serve people. I want you to speak the words of God. I want you to serve in the strength that God provides. And I want you to... Rejoice, and I want you to even suffer for the glory of God. Peter, he does not call us to, to, to wilt back, but he calls us in a difficult culture, even in which we live today, to move forward with a sense of love and with a sense of service and with a heart of rejoicing and with a perseverance in suffering that says, we are here to the glory of God and it's not about us. So, in this text, we find that the point really is very simple. That we as believers, when we suffer, we should suffer to the glory of God. So, let's think about that and think about this in light of of three challenges. First, that as we think about suffering, that suffering for Christ or suffering as a Christian should be expected. Suffering for Christ should be expected. Notice what he says in verse number 12 as we picked up. Don't be surprised. Don't, don't let this shock you. You're living in a, in a very different world now that you've come to know Christ. You're a new creation in him. And now you listen to different marching orders and you have a new master and a new Lord. And as you follow him, understand, you're walking into a fiery ordeal. That's what, that's exactly the picture that he gives. Notice in verse number 12. Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. See, he gives a picture here. And the picture is, is that believers will suffer persecution. Believers will suffer persecution. It's not kind of even a question mark in Peter's mind here. The picture is this, don't be surprised when this happens. It's going to happen. Now, in our culture, it may be a little bit different. It may be that people ridicule 
or people don't want to be our friend or people don't want to hang around us. They tease. Maybe you don't get that job promotion because you hold to a different standard and a, and a high moral uh, uh, desire in your life. And here, Peter says, don't be surprised when suffering comes as a result of following Christ. This should not surprise you at all. I mean, think of it this way. Look all the way back in the words of Jesus in John chapter 15 and verse number 18. He says this, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. This is not anything new. Jesus came with love and grace and peace and preached the good news of the, of the gospel and he healed people. He even raised people from the dead. And what happened? Many in the world hated him. He goes on. He says, if the world hates you, understand that, that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you aren't of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than their, than his master. If they persecute, um, if they persecuted me, then they will persecute you. Jesus makes it very clear, believers will experience persecution. Over the last week, as just preparing and thinking about what is going on throughout the world and what has gone on in history, I went back to some books that really were meaningful to me and challenged me. This book, Tortured for Christ, by Richard Vermbrandt is... He's the founder of the Voice of the Martyrs. But in his book, he shares about growing up in communist Romania and in the 1940s and 50s as he, sh- as he was seeking to share the gospel and be a preacher to, uh, to those that were in their area and that were lost. He was in a Romanian prison and he writes this. It was uh, forbidden to preach to other prisoners as it is in captive nations today. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. So if you preach in prison to the other prisoners in order that they might get saved, then understand it's going to cost you. A number of us, he said this, a number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching as we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching, they were happy beating us, so everyone was happy. And this, this, is, this is real stuff. He goes on, he says, the following scene happened more, than, more times than I can remember. A brother was preaching to other prisoners when guards suddenly burst in, surprising him halfway through a phrase. They, handed, uh, they, they hauled him down the corridor to the beating room. After what seemed an endless beating, they brought him back and they threw him, bloodied and bruised, on the prison floor. Slowly, he picked up his battered body, painfully, and he straightened his clothing and said, Now, brethren, where did I leave off before I was interrupted? And he continued to preach the gospel message. And he says, I have seen beautiful things. What a challenge. Peter writing to the first century, or we see it actually just, uh, you know, less than a hundred years ago under communist Romania. We find you preach, you're going to get beat. We'll preach, we'll take the beating. 
Believers will experience persecution. But notice what it says in this text as well. It tells us and shows us that persecuted believers will receive a spiritual blessing. They will receive a special blessing from God. Notice with me, down just a couple of verses to verse number 14. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now notice what that says. If you're ridiculed for Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. The, the picture is of the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament. You remember? They could only go into the Holy of Holies one time of year because that is where the glory of God was revealed. Remember when Moses was up on the mountain with God and he came down and he was shining with glory? The picture is, is for persecuted believers and those who are suffering and those who are being ridiculed. The promise for us is, man, when you face suffering and when you face persecution, God's spirit and God's glory are going to rest on you. Let's move to Pakistan just in the last few years. And a pastor there named Sajid, he was an evangelist. He got off a bus and a dozen men grabbed him and they blindfolded him and they dumped him in a compound Are you a preacher? Are you converting Muslims? Which organization do you belong to? He basically says, I'm telling you the truth. I am God's preacher. And then they say this. If you want to spare your life, you must deny your faith, become a Muslim. If you don't do as we say, we will torture you. And within 30 minutes, your passion for Christianity will blow away like dust in the wind. And he says, Sajid says, I am ready for whatever you choose to do to me. I am prepared to die for Jesus. I will not lose my passion for him, no matter what you do to me. So this is what they do. They take him and they strap him to a tree with his hands behind him. And they force him to stand barefooted on a block of ice. The Pakistani heat bore down on him, baking the rest of his body. His feet seethed in pain as if he were standing on a million pins. A half an hour became an hour. An hour became two hours. Two hours became four. The bottom and lower sides of Sajid's feet swelled into blisters, tinted in green. He wept but did not speak. Sweat poured from his body, staining his clothes. And then the jeering really starts. It's a hundred degrees and this Jesus lover has frostbite. Maybe now you'll give up this futile running after Jesus and return to where you belong. Maybe now you will return to Allah. Sajid shook his head. Then you will be following Jesus on stumps. When your feet crumble, we will ice down your nubs. 
when your nubs freeze, we will saw them off. Jesus will then turn and look for you, but you will not be there because you will be a man with no legs. But if you follow Allah, you will not only walk, but also run. Isn't that a better option? He shook his head no. Then Sajid began to cry out, help me, help me Jesus. And then he recalled what happened. Listen, suddenly I saw a vision of a radiant angel appearing in front of me. Jesus was with me like the fourth man when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were in the fiery furnace. His pain eased, his, he gained strength and to the surprise of his tormentors and the crowd mocking him, he began singing worship hymns and then he blacked out. He remembered waking up that night in a ditch where a good Samaritan took him to a hotel and literally, like the good Samaritan, paid for him to stay. He contacted his brothers and then was brought back to health. But listen, what happened in the midst of his suffering? And let me tell you, I believe this. I believe I believe that he was able to see and experience the spirit of glory and of God rest on him. Isn't this what happened to Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and verse 54 and following? As he uh, is preaching to those religious leaders and and they take up stones and, and notice he sees the heavens opens up and he says, hey, there I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God and then ultimately prays for His very people who are throwing stones on him, Father, forgive them. There was a man named John Lambert in 1538, again, in in this time of of seeking to share the message of salvation by faith, who was burned at the stake, but every time the flames began to get high, they would dampen them so that they could inflict as much pain as they could. As he cried out, none but Christ, none but Christ, None but Christ. There's a picture here that when the time of suffering came, that the Lord Jesus and the spirit of glory and the spirit of God rested on him. Suffering for Christ should be expected. We should expect. Listen, in our culture today, for those of you who are younger today, even for those of us, we're seeing things we've never seen before in the United States. You better be prepared. And know this, that when the day of suffering comes, the spirit of glory and of God will rest on you too. Suffering for Christ should be expected. Second thing that we find in this passage is that suffering for Christ should bring rejoicing. Now, Peter, what in the world? You tell us to love when it's difficult, you tell us to serve when it's difficult, and you tell us to rejoice when it's difficult? Notice with me in verse number 13. As he, as Peter again pulls no punches, he says, instead rejoice. This is in a present active indicative. This is a present ongoing action. This is what you're supposed to do when the suffering comes. Rejoice! Rejoice! He says, instead rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ. There is a command. And that command, again, is in the present active. It's, a, it's an ongoing command that we are to rejoice in Christ. 
that we are to rejoice now. When we face the suffering, we rejoice now. When the hard times come, we rejoice now. Now listen, this is the same thing James would say in James chapter 1 and verse number 2. My brethren, consider it all joy when you fall into various trials. This is not unusual. This is, this is the picture of how life turns out for those of us who are believers. Count it joy. For most of us, and even for me, even preparing this, man, it just seems like even sometimes the slightest inconvenience can bring me to complaining. Even even the, 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 the slightest circumstance or transition or trial in my life can often man, take my eyes off of the Lord and, and, and focus directly back on me. And this shouldn't be surprising. Paul would say in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And then Paul would also say in Philippians 4.4, 4, as he's writing from prison, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Remember in Philippians 1.29, Paul would say, it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. How do we suffer? We're called to suffer with joy. You remember Acts 16? Paul and Silas are arrested. They're thrown in the inner prison and put in stocks after they've been beaten. And what happens? Acts 16, 25, at midnight, they are singing and praying. And it tells us that the other prisoners were listening. Hmm. Let me ask you, what's going on in your life right now? Difficulty, hardship, trials, transition, How easy it is for us to complain. But even especially when it comes to persecution or the struggle of suffering for Christ, it's so easy for us to miss. Instead, rejoice. (laughs) You know, really when it comes down to it, it's not the part of the Bible that I don't understand that gives me the most problem. It's those parts of the Bible that I do very clearly understand. And that God lays out right in front of you. And when he says, when you're going through your circumstances in life, and if you face hardship for living for Jesus, you're called to rejoice. The command is rejoice now. But then there's a consequence. And that is rejoice now. And the consequence is rejoice later. Notice what it says in verse number 13. This kind of stuff gets you excited. Notice what he says. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you rejoice now in the sufferings for Christ, then he says, when Jesus appears, man, you're going to rejoice with great joy. The picture here is that you are going to rejoice with this great joy. There is this exultation. There's a picture of jumping up and down. You are so excited because the one that you live for, the one that you suffered for, the one that you strove for, the one that you served for, now is standing before you and you rejoice in his presence. Oftentimes we get so attached to everything on earth and everything and all of our stuff and we want earth 
And now the suffering comes. And I only want Christ. I realize all the material stuff, it just doesn't really matter anymore. I want Christ, none but Christ. And then I see him. And I rejoice with great joy. This happens. This is pretty scriptural right here. Take your Bibles and look back with me to Romans chapter 6 just for a moment. I mean Revelation chapter 6, sorry. Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, and we're going to pick up together in verse number 9. Revelation 6, 9. Revelation 6, 9 says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. And they cried out with a a loud voice, Lord! The one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? And notice, they were each given a white robe and they were told to rest a little while until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. A time of martyrdom. Now, slide over to uh, Revelation chapter 7. And pick up with me in verse number 9. Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number standing before the throne, before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever. Now notice verse 13. When one of the elders asked, who are these people in white robes and where did they come from? I said to him, sir, you know. And he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And for this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night. The ones seated on the throne will shelter them. They'll no longer hunger. They'll no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them for, nor any heat, uh, scorching heat for the lamb who is On the center, or at the center of the throne, will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is that day of joy! This is that day! As these martyrs have poured out their life, and now they're welcomed into the presence of Jesus, and they are given water of life forever and ever. Amen. That's the picture. Suffering for Christ should bring Rejoicing. Because if you rejoice now, you'll rejoice later. Third truth that we find is this. Suffering for Christ should be expected. Suffering for Christ should bring glory to God. Or should uh, bring rejoicing. And third, suffering for Christ should bring glory to God. It should bring God the glory. Again, life's not about us. It's ultimately about him. So notice what Peter says. 
If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you're blessed. The spirit of, and, and glory of God rests on you. But notice down in verse number 15. Let none of you suffer as a murderer. Don't suffer for doing wrong. Verse 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. Having that name. He tells them first, do not be ashamed in suffering. Don't suffer, don't, don't, don't feel like you're being dishonored. Don't feel like you're being singled out. This has been going on since Jesus himself because the world hated him and it will carry on until Jesus comes again and rules and reigns from the throne. Don't be ashamed and don't be dishonored. But instead, he gives us the challenge to glorify God in suffering. In that name, that name of being a Christian. Suffering is very real across the world. Suffering is very real as we think about what's going on in our world that we live in today. Let me just give you some very present up-to-date stats. Christianity Today 2023 says that more than 5,600 Christians were killed for their faith last year. Another report that I read said 5,800. But listen to this. 110 per week. 5,600 to 5,800? We're talking 110 per week. Before you lay your head on your pillow, if today is a typical day, 15 to 16 Christians will have been martyred for their faith today. Every day. 15 to 16. Every day. 365 days a year. He goes on. The report says more than 2,100 churches were attacked or closed last year. More than 124,000 Christians were forced from their home or displaced from their home because of their faith. And 15,000 became refugees. The number of Christians abducted last year, 5,259, 100 per week. Overall... 360 million Christians live in nations with high levels of persecution and discrimination. Let that number sink in just for a minute. Do you realize our country doesn't even have 360 million people in it? If you would take everyone in our country and spread them throughout the world and start killing 15 or 16 a day, Start abducting a hundred a week. That's very real, and that's today. That is today. And we're challenged to not back up or to be quiet, but to live for the glory of God. In 1981 in Colombia, A man named Chet Bitterman was working for Wycliffe Bible Translators. And he was kidnapped. He was kidnapped on January the 19th, 1981. And they were told, you have one month. February 19th, all of you Bible translators need to be out of the country. Wycliffe Bible Translators would not budge. They all stayed. On March the 7th, Chet Bitterman was found with a bullet in his heart left on a bus in Bogota. 
a hundred Bible translators were given the opportunity to move to a new field, and none of them did. And it's interesting enough, 200 candidates volunteered to take Chet Bitterman's place. I wonder if persecution came down on the United States, I wonder, like it is across the Middle East, Northern Africa, now into India, areas of South America, if persecution struck here, would we be people who would be willing to suffer to the glory of God? With that, let's pray. Lord, what a, what a challenge. I, I really feel humbled and near, unworthy to even speak of these who have suffered such great persecution. Lord, I have been challenged. I pray that your people would be challenged. That we would live for Jesus no matter what. That we would rejoice now so that we could rejoice later. Jesus, speak to us today. Speak to us about where our heart is and where our commitment is and where our love is. Speak to us today, Lord. In your name, amen.